0: Kent Garrett, welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now 80 years old. Our guest is Victor Ray. He is the F. Wendell Miller Associate Professor in the Department of Sociology and Criminology and African American Studies at the University of Iowa and a non-resident fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institute. His research applies critical race theory to classic sociological questions. His new book is titled On Critical Race Theory, Why It Matters and Why You Should Care. I'm joined by 14 of my Harvard classmates.
1: Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Doug Shapiro. I live in Louisville, Kentucky. I've had a multifaceted career, first in clinical medicine uh, and then in academic uh, behavioral ecology. I worked at universities in various places, including Puerto Rico, for 15 years. And I ended my career working uh, uh, for, in drug companies, designing and overseeing the trial of clinical trials for drugs to, to treat pain.
2: Oh, hi, John Woodford. I'm here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I worked for the University of Michigan editing a publication for 20 years or so. Before that, I worked for uh, both uh, black-owned and white-owned newspapers. Bill
3: Collins, live in Aiken, South Carolina, Harvard class of 63, 20 years in the Navy, driving ships around, operating nuclear power plants and all that kind of stuff, and then worked on hazardous and nuclear waste cleanup for a while, now retired from all that, do a lot of volunteer work living here with my wife. Pete DeLisavoy, I live in northern New Hampshire.
4: Uh, Alden Briscoe, I live in San Mateo, California, but I wanted to ask uh, Professor Ray a question. I believe you were scheduled a few weeks ago and uh, you had a problem with time zones. Yeah.
5: Uh And and my, uh, you have a PhD, my wife has a PhD, and she has trouble with time zones. Well, it wasn't just the it wasn't just the time zone, it was getting, um, I got stuck in an airport overnight. Uh-huh. Oh, and I couldn't, I was like trying to get back here. And so my schedule just got thrown off. But it yes. wasn't just the time zone.
4: But, oh, yeah. I thought it was, was PhDs in time zones. And I was going to ask George Jones, do you, are you are you good on time zones?
3: <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. I'm great on time zones. <laughs> OK. Ken uh, Manister. I'm in Los Altos, uh, California, on the San Francisco Peninsula, as Alden is. Um, originally from the south side of Chicago, also in the Harvard class of 63. Um, I'm uh, given the temperatures that we're experiencing in Northern California right now, which are really uh, astounding and discouraging, but it's uh, I'm viewing it as training for our son's wedding in two weeks, which is gonna be in the Palm Springs desert area. (laughs) So we're just uh, getting ready. Uh, Thank you.
0: David, David Allen. David Allen.
6: Um, after Vietnam era military service, uh, I've had uh, a variety of activities across these years, uh, about a decade in business and ventures of one sort or another. And then frankly, uh, to my great surprise, wound up uh, in university where I guess I found what I really cared about, the life and the mind Subsequent to that, um, uh, really activism, uh, one sort or another, I happen to get mixed up with uh, United Nations activities for a period and subsequently uh, activities, especially locally, but otherwise uh, all focused on uh, protecting and strengthening democracy. Looking forward to yours today.
1: Okay, Ronnie Blau. Ron. Ron Blau, class of 63. Um, Worked all my life in TV and video, still doing some of that, Uh, now working on some museum projects, Um, splitting my time also doing climate volunteering. And I think today's really important. I, I was hearing on the radio just this morning how some libraries were cutting their budgets of controversial controversial literature and they're s- saying okay we're spending this much on controversial literature we're going to subtract that from the budget i mean that's akin to book burning and i think uh,
7: yeah. that makes
1: this uh today's session especially important
3: mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
7: ham powell I-, I live in nashville i'm from new york and boston and brazil and puerto rico oh. and in the american south a, a lot of times since i've gotten older <laughs> uh, I, I I was awed to read today in uh, joint jottings that uh, you can't uh, had spent ten years on uh, last Negroes at Harvard and I'm not surprised mm-hmm. because the book is so dense it's it, it, like every every sentence seems to say a lot huh. and, and on CRT on <clears throat> CRT I just don't know how I, I'm just shocked that, that anybody cannot want to know more. Black, white, yeah. whatever, <laughs> period.
4: Okay, Jeff. Yeah, hi. Um, Jeff Fox, also from class of 63, trained as, uh, living in uh, Southern Spain, uh, trained as a sociologist, now writing mostly. Fiction.
0: Okay, Spencer.
7: Hi, Spencer Jordan. I'm uh, class of 61. Very looking forward a lot to this uh, uh, session that you're going to uh, uh, talk about uh, your work. It's, it's, it looks so timely, it's absolutely timely. Uh, I'm a, uh, a writer, I'm a, a civil rights, uh, 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 writer on civil rights history. And uh, when you say uh, the radical thinking Uh, I I think that one of the major points of radical thinking was the Niagara movement of 1905, which really was the foundation of the modern civil rights movement. In fact, it's recognized as such by the United States. Uh, I was invited to the 100th anniversary as one of the descendants of the uh, Du Bois uh, group uh, that uh, uh, formed the, civil rights movement engaged in radical thinking. Uh, and uh, before that, uh, we were in the abolitionist movement. So I've written some books on that, uh, called The Dream Dancers. Goes all the way back to 1780, with the first uh, right to vote. There was also uh, some ancestors of mine that were part half Wampanoag <laughs> and half, uh, half Black. Uh, and uh, so the radical thinking and the... Uh, what you're doing is taking this way and you know to another step, and I'm really interested in, in, in hearing that step. Thanks a lot. Okay, George.
8: George Jones, class of '63. I'm currently in Muskogee, Oklahoma, which is in the Central Time Zone, and I'm feeding my house. <laughs> uh,
9: David. Uh, David Lellieveld, class of '63. Uh, I'm a historian of India, um, and I spoke to this group comparing American racism and and, uh, 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 forms of discrimination that uh, are often uh, labeled as caste in India. Uh, And I'm very interested in critical race theory as it's uh, baked into the American legal systems, particularly uh, in uh, India, Uh, It's much more elaborately and perhaps more obviously uh, 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 a system of uh, legalized uh, discriminations and uh, I I have heard people use anything like critical race uh, theory, maybe because it's lying on the surface for all to see and uh, doesn't need to be dug out. But uh, uh, I, I would like to learn more about it and see how uh, uh, the two
8: systems compare.
0: Okay, uh, George Allen.
8: Hey there, um, I'm in Los Angeles. I'm a semi-retired lawyer, also uh, class of 63. Uh, Professor Ray, I'm most interested in your being in Iowa City. Uh, I grew up in Omaha, but my entire family is from Iowa, uh, all over the state, West Branch in particular, uh, which is only a few miles east of Uh, My grandmother uh, was a member of the same Quaker meeting as Herbert Hoover in West Branch. For whatever that's worth. I guess I probably had a lot of experience with time zones. My general sense is anybody can go west, uh, but going east is really tough. But then once you make it about nine or 10 time zones, it doesn't matter, it's really horrible either way.
0: Okay, all right, thank you. All right, well, Dr. Victor Ray, it's so nice to have you. Thank you, finally get to see you. Thank you, tell us about the
5: book and then we'll get going. Yeah, sure. So uh, this book came, uh, I mean, it was, it's kind of an indirect response to the moral panic around critical race theory that's happening right now. So um, I, I, you know, when Trump in 2020 released his executive order banning what he was calling critical race theory, because I don't think what he was banning was critical race theory, diversity in sort of the federal judiciary. I was preparing my first lecture for the class I teach at the University of Iowa uh, on critical race theory. And um, I was immediately like, uh, this is my specialty. I've been teaching this for many, many years. I use it in my research. And am I gonna be allowed to do this at Iowa anymore? Um, So there was some some immediate confusion. Uh, Iowa actually halted its diversity policy, um, all programs that were like aimed at diversity for a while because they were worried about sort of a loss of federal funding. There was a a sort of immediate outcry from faculty members like me uh, and they they relented. Um, So, you know, it died down for a bit and uh, the book actually came about because uh, it started back up, and I thought uh, i was I was tired of the misinformation. Uh, I teach this stuff to undergrads, um, and I knew that uh, it was possible to write a book that was accessible to you know a relatively well educated person that could spell out the basics pretty briefly um, and And, you know, uh, I don't know how many of you had the opportunity to read the book, but one of the things that I I tried to to avoid was um, sort of chasing after misinformation. I thought the ideas from critical race theory, things like structural racism, have been around well before even the civil rights movement, uh, and that there was no need to try and Engage bad faith folks who would continually move the goalposts, right, and and just sort of find a a rhetorical uh, out, or rather than than dealing with, you know, the fact that among scholars there's not much debate that racial inequality is like profound and lasting in the U.S., right? There's not much debate that things like intersectionality matter in shaping, for instance, women of colors maternal health outcomes and their quality of life overall. Um, so I just tried to give, you know, short, punchy chapters explaining key ideas. Um, yeah, with the hopes that, you know, good faith folks like you all would read it and judge the evidence, you know, I can be wrong, but judge the evidence and, uh, and make a decision outside of sort of the, um, the misinformation. Uh, that I think has been really pernicious. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'll stop there, and we can. And I think you all have have specific questions for me, and we can move that way. Okay. Well, uh, Doug,
0: you you had some questions, I know.
1: <laughs> yes. Well, first, uh, Dr. Ray, I would like to thank you for the book. Uh, I've actually read it twice. Uh, it's remarkably lucid and uh and very clear and uh I think it's it's a real addition to you know the ongoing debates that that we're having nationwide um and uh at the at the risk of um i don't know pissing off everyone on this uh uh zoom call against me i want to, to to raise an issue which which kind of bothers me uh and I don't really know how to handle this but it has, it has to do with terminology. And let me just begin by saying that, uh, I don't know how many of you are aware of this, but only something like 62% of American adults had even a bachelor's degree as their highest educational attainment. Um, and uh, how many of these people do you think actually know what a theory is? Um, a lot of people think that any kind of notion that pops into your head um, uh, that's not a fact is a theory. Okay, but racism is not a theory. Uh, you know, as everyone here knows, all the, the whole history of uh, the treatment of race in, in America and elsewhere uh, has been dreadful. And the damage that it's done to people and their families and everything is, is just is, is difficult even to comprehend. Um, And these things are facts. They're not theories. And I think that it's difficult for average Americans to understand uh, what we're actually talking about when we talk about critical race theory. I I just don't like the term. I think it makes it harder for us to communicate with average people and to, you know, to get our viewpoints kind of uh, accepted by people at large. So, and and I don't, I also don't think it helps to explain that critical race theory therapy is structural racism. Mm -hmm. uh, Because the common notion of a structure is some sort of a building, or maybe a swimming pool, or something like this. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to hear, you know, what you think about uh, the terminology. And I'm not trying to say that there's anything wrong with the terminology as an academic subject matter. Uh, Clearly, uh, I'm an academic myself, and I fully appreciate the need to have uh, technical terms that people use, but when it comes time to try to explain to average people uh, who don't even have a a bachelor's degree uh, what critical race theory is, I think the terminology itself is a barrier that stands in our way uh, to making people understand
5: Um, So, you know, I think this is an interesting question, and I think it's a question I've gotten a lot over the course of my career and part of the issue what I think is the way that race gets talked about um, in the media and sort of generally versus the way something like, like your question, I wonder if it would apply equally to like evolutionary theory or quantum theory, right? So would you, would you tell a biologist that they shouldn't use the language of evolutionary theory if they were then trying to explain natural selection to a general audience? And so I think like, because race is so highly politicized, I think the language of critical race theory gets scrutinized in the way that would, we wouldn't scrutinize like a mathematician or a a um, physicist for talking about you know number theory or or string theory. Uh, so part of it I think I don't think it's inherent to critical race theory. I think it's inherent to the way that people opposed to racial inequality have weaponized the language of critical race theory. And I would also say, and I, and I wrote a piece about this for time, they did the same thing with evolutionary theory. I don't know if you all remember this in the, in the 90s, but there was a, the um, group, what were they called? I'll remember as I, as I talk about this. So there was a group, uh, the Discovery Institute, that pushed into public schools very, very, successfully in some cases, the idea that we should teach the controversy around evolutionary theory. Now, if you ask biologists about it, they're gonna say there's not much controversy, right? It's like say, like asking climate scientists about controversy around global warming, the theory of global warming, right? Well, there's not much controversy among climate scientists. Very similarly with critical race theory, there's not much controversy among social scientists or people who study this stuff, study race and ethnicity, that structural racism is real. Is is that the best way to, to get it across to a general audience? I, I might concede, maybe not. But a lot of the times we're not talking to a general audience. So critical race theory becoming what it did was because bad faith folks weaponized it, assuming that folks wouldn't know what they were talking about, wouldn't know what theory meant, wouldn't know what structural racism was. So, you know, one of the things I try and do is say, like, look, this, this stuff is some, in some cases, technical, but a general reader can understand. And so, like, I use the example, if we talk about structural racism, I use the example of segregation. So, you know, if you say, like, racism is structural, a lot of folks would be like, well, what do you mean? And you say, well, look at this city. Right. This was, you know, you pick a city, you look at how it's segregated. You can go back and look at how the federal government and banks colluded to create patterns of segregation that still exist today. Right. And I can say that, like, look, if someone redistricted your committee, say, you know, you're an average white person who doesn't. Agree that structural racism is the thing. If someone redistricted your committee and you lost, you know political representation, that's a social structure. You would understand that. If someone redistricted your schools and your 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 kids are getting a, a less quality education, that's a social structure. It has created a pattern of social relations that create advantage and disadvantage. so so on the one hand, like I get what you're saying. On the other hand, I think, you know, we, we use the terms we have. Uh, folks like Dr. King talked about structures. Um, and I think, you know, he was a, he's a brilliant communicator, uh, talked about structures and then explained what he meant. Uh, and, you know, it's one of the things I try and do. I'm like, this is structural. Here's what we mean. It's a pattern of social relations. It's a, it's a distributional system that creates advantage and disadvantage.
3: People have seized upon the term critical race theory, to oppose anything which suggests there's anything wrong with American society from their point of view, their point of view being the more or less privileged white people. And they don't want to admit there's anything fundamentally wrong. Anything that's wrong with society is those leftist liberals or whatever. And it's not me, the white man who has set up these structures and i think that's what they're concerned about and they simply use critical race theory as kind of a catch-all term for all that that's the way it seems to me
5: so so the christopher rufo he's been written about in the new yorker and the washington post and you know even uh like he's he's been credited with like convincing trump to do the initial um executive order that made this a kind of bigger moral panic. And Christopher Ruffo uh, says very clearly, I was worried about the protests surrounding George Floyd's murder, how massive those protests were and what they meant. He says, I went and started reading uh, a bunch of books about race in the United States. And I saw they were citing people like Kimberly Crenshaw and other critical race theorists. And I chose this term as a weapon Partially because folks wouldn't understand it, right? So I, I want to be clear: they took he took work from the academic literature among specialists and weaponized it. And then he has this series of tweets, which are actually kind of incredible because he, it worked, even though he told everyone what he was doing. In in the tweets, he's like, "I'm taking." I, I'm, I'm doing a bad paraphrase here, right? So like, this is not an exact quote, but in the tweets, he's, he says something like, I'm taking all manner of things that Americans don't like about race And I'm calling them, whether or not they are critical race theory, I'm calling them critical race theory in order to like weaponize the terminology against like racial justice. And so I think the point you're making is is important, is that like this was sort of specialized in the academy, something that we, you know, thought a lot about uh, and and then it got weaponized. It got taken out. It got intentionally misconstrued and, uh, you know, in an attempt to delegitimate it. And, you know, in the piece, I told you I wrote a piece about this for times. I compare this to the Scopes of Monkey Trial, right? Like like the, the history of taking things that are well accepted among specialists and sowing uh, moral panic for political gains among non-specialists. And that's, that's one of the things that I think is happening here. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah yeah i'm just wondering how
4: i would deal with this in a classroom where where i haven't been for many years but i used to teach this uh, i used to teach uh, race relations in uh, sociology department university of illinois in chicago for years
5: oh uh, i'm going there friday uh huh yeah for a talk yeah i'm i'm headed there like i'm headed there today and i given a talk there tomorrow so
4: it was a wonderful place for me to teach in those years uh, I, I I liked it because um, tuition was fairly low. And so you could get, get uh, you know, people who might not have an opportunity to edu- get an education otherwise. And you get people from all of the ethnic groups in that very diverse city. Um, and so one of the ways to teach anything about race was to get them to talk to each other. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, uh, you know, and I would have them uh, doing, like part of the assignment was always, uh, to do some volunteer work. That was, that was, besides the reading, you know, and, and certain tests, um, I wanted a report from them on their work in some organization. And among the organizations, this is, well, this is way back, this is back in the 70s, uh, was the Black Panther Breakfast Program. Uh, mm-hmm. which, but I, I gave them options because, of course, some people were well, that's too radical, I'm not going to go for that. Okay, well, they can also, also do something for the Red Cross. And we, when we... I brought in people from those organizations to give a pitch, you know, to recruit people. And, uh, uh, you know, I I think they they learned quite a lot. We had, uh, had, I I remember in particular, a uh, retired white uh, man who had been, he'd been a real estate broker for years and finally decided he wanted to finish, wanted to get his BA, his bachelor's. And he was driving down from Waukegan to Chicago and he got very excited working in with the Panthers. Uh, it turns out he knew about real estate and he could be, he could advise people uh, you know, like a widow who had veterans money. And, you know, what what am I going to do with this? Money, you know, and how, what would I um, invest in? And so on. So, um, but anyway, I'm wondering if, you know, I, of course we didn't talk about critical race and we didn't use the term. Yeah. We did talk a lot about the history of inequality and, uh, I think that were I'm. So I'm, I'm just. I, I. I'm not quite sure what I would do, if I were, I, again to teach such a course. But so, I, I, you know. So I, I appreciate your dilemma.
5: So one one thing that I do is I start with precursors, right? I start with folks like Du Bois and Dr. King, who critical race theorists say they they drew on their thought. Critical race theory. Kimberly Crenshaw says she part of like the development of critical race theory was her being an African American studies undergrad, and she brought many of those ideas into her study of the law. Uh, And so, you know, I start with precursors, but I talk about the history of the development and I talk about this a little bit in the book, the history of the development of critical race theory out of, uh, you know, activist radical movement ideas and the long history of, you know, black thought in the US that was opposed to white supremacy and that kind of racial domination. Um, I think you know, I've been teaching now for, I don't know, eight or nine years post PhD. And um, I think there's, it's been an interesting time to be teaching these kinds of issues. So um, Mike Brown was killed the first week that I was teaching at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. And so, you know, and then, you know, he was, they, they said the officer was not charged at the end of the semester. And I remember like very clearly um, students were emailing me as they were studying for their finals saying like, even with everything I learned in this class, like I can't believe they, they you know, aren't gonna bring any charges. Um, and so, so I guess like that, that background is to say over the course of teaching since sort of the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, to now, there have been some real intense national moments that kind of riveted students' attention to these issues in a way that uh, I didn't necessarily expect or, or wasn't even uh, happening while I was in graduate school, right? Because we were kind of in the Obama moment there, and a lot of folks were trying to say, you know, we've overcome. Um, and so, between that and then, I would say also another moment uh, that's been really big was the the 2020 uh, response to George Floyd's murder. So I had a number of students in classes then that were involved in protests here in Iowa City, and I know it's Iowa City, but the protests were actually pretty big for Iowa City. And there was, you know, I mean, there was a lot of vandalism, there was a lot of spray painting in downtown buildings and things like that. But students. Uh, we're taking these issues seriously uh, in a really, I, I mean, I study this and think about it all the time. So I think it's important. But you know, they, they were drawn to the importance of it. Um, and then I think the last thing I'll say is, you know, one of the I wouldn't say benefits. I would prefer nothing. I would I would prefer this sort of moral panic around critical race theory was not happening because I think reactionary movements can be very dangerous. But I would say that uh, you know telling like twenty something year old college kids what they can't do is a good way to get them to be interested in it. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so, so like I have a lot of students now who uh, you know the first day of class this semester. I'm teaching a class that's, you know, there's some critical race theory in the class, but it's on race and organizations. It's about like discrimination in the workplace and that kind of thing. But I say, you know, I just finished this book on critical race theory and I have multiple students come up after class saying like, what is it? You know, like very interested and uh, uh, confused because the misinformation has been been successful or at least like muddied the waters some. All right, I'll stop talking now. Can, can you define in one sentence? what critical race theory is. One sentence. Uh, (laughs) That's interesting. Um, I would use Crenshaw's definition. She says it's a verb. She says critical race theory is a verb in the sense that um, it changed over the course of its history. So maybe a better way to say is like, it is a body of thought that arose to explain how race functioned in the American legal system. Since then, it has spread, ideas from critical race theory have spread to other parts of the social sciences and humanities. But I would say that like, we're still like in the minority of folks who use this approach, like in sociology. um, It's become more prominent recently, but we're, we're still in the minority, you know? There's a long tradition of race scholarship in sociology that is not critical race theory. I, I just want to ask
8: you, Professor, how much do you think it's possible to get around what we now have as a cacophony of, of resistance to this, which I really see as white supremacism uh, going by another name. Uh, if we can describe this in somewhat neutral Ways uh, as yeah. as as a means of approach.
5: So this is also a really interesting question to me. That uh, I don't know. You might not like my answer. Um, the the I'm a social scientist, right? And so, like, I think statistical evidence. I think like neutral uh, neutral studies. Uh, I think all of that is very very important. Um, But I will point to two recent studies that make me worry or make me feel, you know, nervous about the idea that just producing like sound stats uh, is going to be enough to convince people, right? So there's a study that shows when you tell folks who believe the system is fair, believe that the sort of criminal justice system is fair, about racial disparities in sentencing or you know, mass incarceration overall, um, rather than lessen their sense of fairness, they actually call for harsh penalties. They actually become more committed to the idea that the system is fair when they see statistical disparities. Another case in which this happened recently was the widespread publicizing of racial disparities in COVID, you know, uh, contracting COVID and in the death rates, right? And so a number of right, white folks saw the, the data that showed people of color and black folks in particular were more likely to die from COVID and they mistakenly took away the notion, not that we need to do more for communities most affected, but that they were safe. Right. And so when we interpret statistics and when we interpret findings like this, they're often interpreted through personal identity and the lens we bring to the data. And so statistics that are very convincing to me about criminal justice and, you know, COVID can be to some folks, um, you know, the opposite of convincing, and another thing that I would I would say here is you know a lot of statistics that are now used uh, I think rightly to point to uh, structural racism um, were so things like you know differential life expectancy based on exposure to racism over the life course uh, were used earlier in the 20th century to say this shows the genetic inferiority of people of color. Right. It it was the data was the same. It was about the framing and the theory that they brought with them to interpret the data. And so um, so on the one hand, yes, we absolutely need good, strong, as objective as we can get as neutral as we can get data. We also need theories that interpret that data in a way that I would say is consistent with like justice and fairness. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I, I I think we agree. I just, I think data, you know, we bring an interpretive frame to data and it's hard to get around that in a society in which racial inequality is rampant and often justified. Mm-hmm. I don't mean. I don't mean justified. I mean people justify it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> people explain it away. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, David Allen.
6: Uh, this may even be a, a segue from what we're discussing right now. We'll see. Going back to the beginning of the discussion, where if I can put it this way, the focus was on. Uh, how do we get this discussion to the general public? Uh, If we put it this way, we turn the microscope around, as Doug pointed out, um, about a third of the society uh, have not gone on to college. Uh, We could even go so far as to say that uh, we have left, a body politic, who are not equipped to deal in an effective, rational way with the questions that we all face every day, as those in front of us here. Uh, if you come to that conclusion, uh, we don't have a solution, but sometimes knowing where the problem is, is at least the beginning of a road to getting someplace we'd like to get to. And of course, the suggestion here is that uh, until we get a more educated populace, and if you look around the world at uh, other developed countries, we discover how woefully, woefully lacking the US is in actually educating its citizenry. Some would even say it's by design to keep a pliant uh, underclass. Uh, that's an extreme position, but not out of the question. Um, until we get to a better position uh, with a citizenry who can deal with these matters, they're going to be uh, susceptible to, as you put it so well, uh weaponizing this and using it against the rest of the society it's yeah. so, a question it's an observation
5: uh, so i'll I would just respond to this this quickly um because i'm gonna i'm gonna have to go at noon but i'll say I'll say a couple of things i, I think <laughs> I think it's important that they are targeting public schools with this. Another thing that Christopher Rufo has said is that like the goal, part of the goal here is to privatize public schools, right? Mm. So I think that that is super important. I think the worry about kids learning sort of the real history of race and racism in the U.S. is also important. You'll often hear the folks say, "Um, this will harm white children or they won't understand. I actually think white children will understand it very clearly and it might make the it, it if you've ever been around little kids, they're absolutely obsessed with fairness and and actually, the data's on my side. If you teach kids about this, they become more concerned about the history of race and racism. So I think targeting schools there is also important. The last thing I want to say is like, I do think that there are some like folks who are easily influenced by this stuff, right but i i I think social movements in addition to education are necessary to fix this stuff. And the reason I'll say that is like the most educated people in our society have often pushed the most racist conspiracy theories and used the best evidence up from stats and other cases to make their case, right? So like uh, you know, there's a history, a, a book uh, I I think is excellent called From Savage to Negro, which is sort of the history of um, eugenics in the United States and how folks at places like Harvard, places like the University of Iowa, um, treated eugenics as an actual science, right? And I had arguments over whether there was one creation in the Bible or multiple creations, because obviously people of different races had to be different species of human, right? And so I think, um, I don't think education is always necessarily the way out. I think education can provide really elaborate ideologies uh, for racial inequality. And I think we've seen it in science, we've seen it in social science, we've seen it in the law, we've seen it in a bunch of other places. Oh, okay, John,
0: well, John, you had a well,
2: question? Um, I, I think I'd I have to say that um, I don't find the, this is a rhetorical and political, uh, ideological campaign in a way. And so I think one way it needs to be measured is whether it's effective in in winning over people you'd like to win over and enlarging the potential uh, coalition and alliance of people who are against racism. I don't find the term and the uh, application of the word theory helpful at all. I think that the uh, theories of uh, numbers and evolution you mentioned have been contested and are always open to be contested by experts in the field, but I don't find that this is really being directed as a theory of race or racism. Um, It's not even needed. This is a country in which the slave system is right there, patently open to be examined and explained to people without any uh, reference or without any raising uh, hackles about whether people are going to be indoctrinated. The facts are sitting right there through a great history, you know, a great deal of the country's history, and then you go to the Jim Crow system and the current uh, types of structural racism, of, of systemic racism, so racism, without any uh, need to refer to some sort of theory. So that's uh, that's one question. Also, Doug, did you say that 62 percent of the public? had or did not have a BA because 62% of the public does not have a BA. Only about 40 some percent of the US public has a BA. And so uh, again, if we're talking about uh, giving people a weapon to let them see the destruction of our public school system uh, be enacted right before our eyes, I would have to question whether, since it is a political struggle, whether it, whether critical race theory and the way it's being used is not really handing a weapon to your opponent. I mean, so I actually,
5: I, I don't know. I mean, the, the reason I say I don't know is critical race theory, it existed in the legal academy for more than 40 years. Before it became this current sort of moral panic,
2: right? It was a, a Derek Bell thing because he didn't the critical legal theory people he felt shut him out, and he wanted to get his own uh, brand up. That's what I think, and uh, I think it was spawned, uh, you know, uh, in that way. I don't think there is any theory that could be qualified to justify the use of the term theory. That anyone can describe. That's why we get this rhetoric of it's a verb. It's a this, it's a that. You know, so it's, a, it's an empty signifier, philosophically speaking.
5: I, I mean, I think, you know, I think there's a number of ways that theory gets used in the social sciences. And I think that it's totally in line with it, right? So theory gets used if you talk about like, you know, sociologists draw on like Marxist theory or Weberian theory is like a general worldview, a set, of, a set of tenets to think about the world. I go through many of those tenets in the book about social construction, about structural racism, about theories of progress, about interest convergence. Those are all, you know, testable. They describe a set of empirical facts. I think it's, I think you, so there's that. And then I think as far as like handing them a weapon, Like I said, it's been around for 40 years. But also, I think, did evolutionary theory hand the folks who turned it into the Scopes Monkey Trial a weapon? Or did it describe the world in a way in which folks who wanted to see the world in a different way didn't like, and so they attacked it? That's not handing them a weapon. That's doing your job as an analyst to describe the world and then having that misinterpreted, right? And so well,
2: the race theory now describes what uh, uh, a worldwide. It phenomenon? describes, it or describes,
5: what? I mean, so folks have applied it to other areas of the world, but it describes the way sort of colorblind laws in the US have worked to make and disadvantage people of color. It describes how folks have um undermined anti-discrimination law it describes the workings of structural racism across a whole bunch of different domains. It describes why actually sociologists and anthropologists who talked about the social construction of race in the 30s were correct before eugenicists and many um modern day geneticists right there's a there's a I'll lot of, without uh,
2: reference all of that has been done without even uh uh Putting it in the garb of theory. Actually, every single one of those, every single one of those
5: things was was a theory, right? If you talk about the social construction of race, you're talking about a theory,
8: because uh, yeah, we labeled
5: that, but it was a theory, of course. Yeah, it was a theory, right? Like, what is the
4: theory? We've got to get you back because we
2: talk about what is the theory? (laughs) What
5: what is is the theory? theory? The theory is it was against eugenicist theory of an innate biological essence to race, right? And race, the social social conditions that made racial categories being more important than anything innate and biological, and it was a huge debate in anthropology. And then critical race theorists picked it up and brought it into the law. Like these, are, I mean, th- so like ob- objection to the use of theory, like I get in terms of the general public, but in social sciences, like that's it's a theory. Like that, it, it qualifies as a theory on a number of the sort of classic ideas of what con- what constitutes a social science theory. Describes so a in the world. Right. What
1: would you think about using a term like ongoing racial unfairness?
5: Uh, I think. Every- I think. I think it's important to call racism racism, and I think it's important to call white supremacy white supremacy. Um, and then I guess the last thing I'll say about like handing in the. Handing an enemy a weapon, um, I think you know it's impossible to sort of control how folks use your work. You can try and do good and honest work, and the example I always use here is conservatives, uh, who always use um, "I Have a Dream," Dr. King's "I Have a Dream" speech against King's point right? So they, they use the one quote of like uh, the color of their skin versus the content of their character to say that King had a colorblind idea about how we get past race, which is patently false if you read uh, much more beyond that line from that single speech, right? Um, but like was King was in I Have a Dream speech, was King handing his enemies a weapon or were bad faith people using a truth that he pointed out about the world against the goals of the civil rights movement, right? I
2: think this is a matter of, of, but both of these are, all of these are a matter of rhetoric. I mean... Really?
5: Yeah, it's a matter of... You're having
2: an opponent who is interested in maintaining a racist system.
5: Yeah.
2: And it's up to you then to come back at them effectively and win over, you know, win the argument. And... uh, I think
5: I, if critical race I, I theory wasn't so. effective they wouldn't be attacking it in this way. <laughs> they are well, they are terrified of they are terrified of it because they know that the facts underlying the theory hold up empirically.
2: So who's winning then in the battle in society as far as I I mean in quality, the battle our society, educational system our educational public educational system both the Support of it and its quality is going down. The health that was
5: happening well before that was happening well before they weaponized yeah. critical race yeah. theory. Yeah, like that critical race theorists can't be blamed for that. They've been I'm fighting that it. since the start.
2: I'm not blaming them for it. Yeah, I'm blaming them for being um, for for not being able to effectively counter it. Right,
5: right. I think in small instances, they have. I guess I would also say this, like, like, would you, I don't know, this is a confusing perspective to me. So like, would you blame folks who were in social movements before the civil rights movement for not effectively ending Jim Crow?
2: No, right? <laughs> oh, they, so, did. they did, if, but I'd like to see what it took to end Jim, Jim Crow looked at a bit more closely.
5: I mean, we, yeah, there's a ton of, there's a ton of stuff on that. And I would say, you know, the critical race theorists in the legal academy actually said very clearly that like their point was to figure out why the backlash started winning. And so one of the things that I argue in my book is the reason that they started attacking critical race theory right now is there is an ongoing backlash Critical race theory helps explain. It helps give the tools to explain what's going on. And so that's why they're targeting it. Mm -hmm. So, gentlemen, I I hate to have to go. Yeah, but I'm going to have to go because I have uh, events tonight and I have to drive a few hours to get there.
8: Okay. Well,
5: well, well, thank you for coming and thank you. Absolutely. We'll have to get you back.
0: It's great. Yeah, just let me know. It was great talking with you guys. That was author Victor Ray. His new book is titled On Critical Race Theory, Why It Matters and Why You Should Care. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or from wherever you get your podcast. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.